You're listening to the Hoping in God's Future sermon series at Sojourn East. Whether in times of peace or calamity, security or uncertainty, God invites His people to look to Him with hope because He is both sovereign and good. Hello, friends. Let me start with a question to start things off today. What will it be like in the first five minutes after death? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Whether when you and I close our eyes for the last time, whether it's after a long illness or a sudden accident, what will we experience? Well, I think if we were to go out in the street and survey what people thought about life after death, I think we'd get all kinds of different answers from reincarnation to nothingness to some kind of nirvana. And I believe today there's actually a lot of confusion about what happens after we die, even among Christians. And I think a big part of the reason why there's confusion, even among Christians, and and why we're often not really clear about what happens after death is because we as Christians have actually stopped thinking and speaking and preaching about heaven. And I think we suffer for it. In past times, Christians used to preach and, and talk about heaven all the time. In fact, if you look back in the history of the church, heaven was one of the main themes and songs and, and conversations that Christians had together, but not so today. About 20 years ago, uh, when I was a pastor in Illinois and before I did a PhD and as I was preparing for that, I actually did uh, some research on heaven in the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the books I read was called The Biblical Doctrine of Heaven. It was written by an old guy named Wilbur, Wilbur Smith. And one of the most striking things about this book was the bibliography in the back. I remember so distinctly because Smith had spent uh, really months and months searching theological libraries all over to put together what he wanted to do is produce a very comprehensive list of all the Christian works on heaven. So just pages and pages of listings of, of Christians talking and writing about heaven. And what was interesting is that when he got to the 20th century, when he got to the modern era, there was maybe a page worth where all, all, you know, all the pages before that from all the earlier centuries was just full page after page after page. And he wrote this book in 1968. I think in the last 50 years since then, there's probably even less work, less sermons, fewer books on heaven, except for occasionally some kooky stuff. Now, the reason I think this is so important is because, as you know, when you shoot a cannon, the trajectory is determined by how high you aim the barrel. And I fear that American Christians today, at the most, we maybe think about earthly retirement, if not only even shorter-term goals. So I don't think we should be surprised if that's as, as far as we're aiming, that our lives and our ambitions and our affections are kept actually at such a low trajectory. We're not shooting toward heaven. It's this It's as if we're pointing the cannon barrel straight into the earth and then loading all the powder of our lives into it that we can and that we don't understand why the cannonball doesn't go soaring through the air but only explodes in our faces. We're aiming too low. So I think, friends, we need to understand heaven. And so I ask us again, what happens in those first five minutes after death? And what I want to do today is I want to answer that question 
from Scripture. Now, now the difficulty is that Scripture's teaching about heaven is actually scattered in a number of places. There's not just one good passage that we could go to to explain all that we can know about heaven. So today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have us go through several passages kind of quickly. And, and here's how I want you to think about these passages. I'm going to give you five photos or five snapshots of what we will see in those first five minutes after death. Now, we must never forget that Scripture says that eye has not seen nor ear heard nor entered the hearts of man what God has prepared for those who love him. So what that means is everything I'm going to say and everything that Scripture reveals about heaven are only approximations, right? The beauty and wonder of heaven will be beyond what any human language or our sinful minds can begin to comprehend. So these are just five snapshots. And they're really only blurred, smudged, black and white photos compared to the 360 degree full color smell and taste living experience that heaven will be. These images are only rough approximations, but I think they're true nonetheless. So if you'd imagine with me that you've died and you've awoken in heaven, and in the first five minutes you turn around and you see these five things. First, heaven is the place of those who are asleep in Jesus. Heaven is the place of those who are asleep in Jesus. If you have a Bible, you can just listen along. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Here, the Apostle Paul is responding to a concern on the part of some Christians at Thessalonica. They had heard the gospel. They had received it with joy. They're awaiting the, the return of the resurrected Jesus who had defeated death, as Paul taught them. But as time went on, some of the believers in Thessalonica died, just like happens to us, and that caused some of them to doubt. If Christ has defeated death, as you taught us, Paul, how is it the Christians still die? And so they asked. And here's how he responds in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul's point is that when a Christian dies, which is clearly what he means by saying they're asleep, that was a common way of talking about death, asleep, that when a Christian dies, we should not lose hope because they too will be resurrected bodily when Christ returns. In fact, they'll even precede those who are still alive, he says. But some people, I'm afraid, have misunderstood this text to be teaching what is called soul sleep, which is the belief that when we die, we're unconscious until the second coming of Christ. Maybe that's your view, but I want to challenge that a little bit because I think this misunderstands that sleep here is an image. It's metaphorical language for death. And what Paul says elsewhere in the rest of the New Testament is that when we die, we are alive to Christ. We're not asleep. And 2 Corinthians 5, for example, Paul says, Therefore, we are always confident and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. And we're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body at home with the Lord. In other words, when we're in our physical bodies, we're absent from the full presence of the Lord. But when we're absent from our bodies, that is when we die, 
we are then at home with the Lord. Similarly, in Philippians 1, Paul says that he has a struggle within himself. The struggle is that he knows that it would actually be fruitful for others, for him to continue to live in the flesh, to minister to them. But he says he would rather depart from this body so that he could be with Christ. He's not going to be asleep so that he could be with Christ. And, and I think even clearer, in the book of Revelation, we see that in heaven, the souls of Christians who have died are there worshiping. They're not asleep. They're there worshiping, even crying out for God to return. So when we die, the souls of Christians go to heaven immediately and are in the presence of God, Scripture teaches. This means that your father or your mother or your child or your friend or husband or wife who's died in Christ, they're there now. They're the spirits of the souls of righteous men made perfect, as the Bible says. So our first image is that heaven is the place of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Second image, heaven is the place of true worship. I think in the second minute, we'll see that heaven is this place of true worship. And let's turn again to the, to the book of Revelation here in chapter 4, where we have this amazing vision. Look at starting in verse 5 of chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. He writes, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. They, were, they covered their eyes and in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion and the second like an ox. And the third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. And if you skip ahead to the next chapter in Revelation 5, starting in verse 11, we read, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The obvious and inescapable fact of this scene is that heaven is the place of true worship. This is very much the business of heaven, worshiping God and the lamb that was slain, Christ Jesus. Everyone in this scene is caught up with praise and adoration and myriads and myriads upon angels and thousands and thousands, way more than on Christmas night even, are caught up in the adoration and exaltation of the one who sits upon the throne. Have you tasted this? Have you tasted a little bit of this kind of freedom from yourself when you are caught up and ca captured by worship? I have often. I hope you have. And I can remember some, some mountaintop moments of this as well. 
I remember as a young pastor many years ago, uh, going to the, to the pastor's conference in Minneapolis and being there with a thousand other pastors who were hungry and desperate for God, standing in this wood and stone sanctuary, singing with joy and tears, a mighty fortress of our God. And I remember just, just weeping, weeping for the sorrow over my sin and, and also for the joy and the grace and the kindness of God meeting me in that moment. And, and, but here's the thing, friends. Even those rare worship experiences that are the mountaintop experiences, those pale in comparison to what is going on every moment right now in heaven. And you see, the reason worship in heaven is so intense and so true and so continual and so emotionally powerful is because the presence of Christ is so intense and so continual and so true. When we see Christ for who he is, inevitably, we bow down and worship, and that is what's happening perfectly in heaven now, and we get to taste just a little bit of it. And please note, that's not just for certain personality types. It's not just for those who happen to be artistic or creative or emotional. Whenever everything, every person who's hearing this, you have emotional reactions to things that you see that you love, whether it's a soccer game or a football game or a great meal, whatever it is, it is natural that you praise the things that you love. And when we see Christ fully as the people in heaven are, we will bow down with joy and worship. Third image. Heaven is the place where God reigns. Heaven is the place where God reigns. <clears throat> All throughout scripture, heaven is said to be the place where God dwells. For example, Psalm eleven four: the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Hebrews 12 says that when we come to heaven, that we have come to heaven, we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to God, the judge of all. Or think about how the Lord's prayer begins, our father who is in heaven. You see, it's God's dwelling place and from God's dwelling place that he controls, sustains, and directs all that happens in the universe. If you know the book of Job, you can think of Job chapter 1 and, and the scene that starts this amazing epic poem of Job where God is in heaven and Satan comes before him. It's very much a scene of, of God as ruling over the world. And we can also again think of the book of Revelation, say starting in chapter 11 verse 15, where we read, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who was and who, the one who is and the one who was, and because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. Heaven is the place from which God rules the world. In those first five minutes after death, we will see that clearly. Fourth image. Heaven is the place of full knowledge. In that fourth minute, as we continue to turn around and wonder, we will know that heaven is the place of full knowledge. I think here of 1 Corinthians 13, very famous passage of scripture that we hear read at every wedding, and that's wonderful, the love passage there. But 1 Corinthians 13 is sandwiched in between two really important chapters, 12 and 14, that are about spiritual gifts, particularly tongues and prophecy. And Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 13 is that as good as tongues and prophecy are, love is infinitely more important. And Paul says that if we can speak in all different kinds of tongues and we can prophesy, have all kinds of knowledge, if we lack love, we're nothing. Why? Why is that? 
because the things that are most important will last forever. And Paul says in verse 8 that prophecy, the tongues, a special word of knowledge, all these gifts are good, but eventually they will be done away with and love will never cease. Love is greater. And here's the question. Why will those gifts cease? Those important gifts of tongues and prophecy, etc. Why will they cease? Because when the perfect comes, that is when Christ is fully revealed in glory, then they will cease. Look at verse 12 of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. For now... He says, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. When we see Christ face to face as we will in heaven, then we will fully know and understand. We will receive a Full knowledge, miles higher and miles wider than our current knowledge because heaven is the place of full knowledge. I remember many times our families had the opportunity to go to, to Colorado and I remember many times taking a steep hike up into a rather, rather large mountain in Rocky Mountain National Park and I'll never forget the vision of the valley below once you've reached a high enough point that you can see the same roads and rivers that we had just been on a little while below but they look so different from this height. Similarly, I'm always fascinated to see like the aerial view of where you live, or maybe it's a farm or maybe it's your town. Uh, if you go up, in a, especially if you go up in a small plane with a friend and fly around places you're familiar with, it, it's amazing to me how different the silos and the barns and the houses and the parks and the roads look from this different perspective to see it in its entirety. This is what heaven will be like with our knowledge. We will know ourselves more fully than ever before. We'll see the truths of our hearts in the, both their darkness of their motives and desires and also in the forgiveness we receive. We'll have a full knowledge in heaven of, of God that is impossible in this life. Again, Scripture says that no one has seen God with the eye at any time. Yet when we are in heaven, we will be in the presence of God in full glory and majesty and we will perceive him. There'll be no more theological problems like how does human free will fit into God's exhaustive sovereignty and how can there be evil in a, in a world that's, uh, that's completely good made by God and all these things that maybe you didn't think of but now I've got you thinking about. It doesn't matter. In heaven, there will be full understanding in, in our bodies and in our minds and in our hearts. We'll understand these things fully. Imagine a small handheld mirror that's very dirty and splattered all over with mud and tar, and maybe with a large sliver missing right through the middle. And they're trying to look through it. And imagine that the Jesus Christ is standing behind you in all his glory, and you're straining to see in this, this very broken and, and, and tarred over mirror, you're straining to see his image. And then one more factor, that you have very poor eyesight. You have 200-200 eyesight or something. This, friends, is how we see Christ now. We see him only through a glass darkly, as Paul says. And even then, we get glimpses of the beauty and goodness and, and perfection of who Jesus is. And we're only seeing him in this very broken way. Heaven is the place of Christ's full radiance. And all his love and grace and wisdom will sweep over us as warm, small, salty breezes from the ocean. I love how C.S. Lewis depicts having full knowledge at our moment of death. I just recently reread through Screwtape letters, and I 
I hope you're familiar with it. It's this, these letters from one devil to another. And if you don't know, read it. It's, it's great. But at the, near the end, without spoiling it, uh, the, the human dies. And the, the devil describes what happened to the human at the moment that he died. And let me just read this for you. It's so beautiful, so, so powerful. The devil says, How well I know what happened at the instant when they snatched him from you. There was a sudden clearing of his eyes, was there not? And he saw you for the first time and recognized the part you had had in him and knew that you had it no longer. Just think what he felt at that moment, as if a scab had fallen off from an old sore, as if he were emerging from a hideous shell-like tetter, uh, as if he shuffled off for good and all a defiled, wet, clinging garment. By hell, it is misery enough to see them in their mortal days taking off dirtied and uncomfortable clothes and splashing in hot water and giving little grunts of pleasure, stretching their eased limbs. What then of this final stripping, this complete cleansing? The more one thinks of it, the worse it becomes. Did you mark how naturally, as if he'd been born for it, this earth-born vermin entered into the new life? How all his doubts became, in the twinkling of an eye, ridiculous. I know what the creature was saying to itself. Yes, of course, it was always like this. You die, and then you're beyond death. How could I have ever doubted it? And I know that he saw not only the angels, but he saw him. This animal, this thing begotten in a bed, could look on him. What is blinding and suffocating fire to you is now cool light to him, is clarity itself, and wears the form of a man. All the delights of sense or heart or intellect with which you could have once tempted him, even the delights of virtue itself, now seem to him in comparison, but as the half-nauseous attractions of a rattled harlot would seem to a man who hears that his true beloved, whom he has loved all his life and whom he had believed to be dead, is alive and even now at his door. You see, heaven is the place where we will have full knowledge of both ourselves and God. Heaven is the place with a place for the saints. This fifth and final image of heaven I want to give you today is that heaven is the place with a place for the saints. I think here of John chapter 14. Jesus is there eating a meal with his disciples for the last time. And he's told them that he will be leaving them and of course, they're severely grieved and they're worried by, by this. And <clears throat> he, looks, he looks to them and look at what he says in John 14, 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I, not, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, I apologize to those of you who maybe love the King James Version here, which is good in many ways. But in this case, the outdated English of the King James is a little, little misleading. You may have heard the old saying from or the translation here that Jesus says there are many mansions. And I think that's led to a, a popular belief that they'll, we'll all have mansions lining heavenly streets of gold or something. Maybe we will. I don't know. But I'm sorry to disappoint you. That's actually just not really what this verse is talking about. The point of Jesus' words is that there's a place. There's a room. It's just an image for there's a place for each of us who believe in Christ Jesus. And it's he's there now preparing a place for us. And when he returns, he promises that he will take us with him 
there, that we, his brothers and his sisters, his, his bride will be with him. And the beauty and the power of these verses is the hope that they give us that in the banquet hall of the king, there's a seat for you and me. We're invited. And the celebration will be a feast unlike any other and which will never grow old. And just like the disciples who were worried to hear Jesus was leaving them, when we are worried, when we are anxious, when we are distressed, when we're burdened, we can and should find great courage to remind ourselves there is a place in heaven, in the banquet hall of the king for you. And he who promises this is faithful and he will make it so. Heaven is the place with a place for the saints. I've gone kind of long. So let me just bring this home with one point of application. Here it is. Keep your heart full of faith and joy by meditating on heaven. Keep your heart full of faith and joy by meditating on heaven. You see, because heaven is real and because heaven is wonderful beyond words and because we must persevere in faith to enter it, we must give our labor and energies to keep our hearts in faith and all that we can do, we can't earn our way to heaven, but we can meditate. We can make choices to think upon the things that are true about heaven. As Richard Baxter says it, as digestion turns food into the ingredients for vigorous health, so meditation turns the truths received and remembered into warm affection, firm resolution, and holy conversation. You see, biblical meditation is an intentional, concentrated reflection upon revealed truths in Scripture that is for the purpose of stirring up our love and faith and joy in God. Biblical meditation is intentional, concentrated reflection. And oh, how we need this every day. Do you wish you had more joy? Do you wish you had more love for God? Do you wish you had more faith in God? I do. When you get on your knees in the morning and you find your heart cold and your prayers ineffective, what can you do? What can you do? Well, God has ordained a way, and it's by meditating on what is true, and especially the truth of what is awaiting us. As Richard Baxter, who I mentioned a moment ago, a godly 17th century pastor wrote, if we will vigilantly train our minds and hearts to this end, we will find ourselves in the suburbs of heaven. And then he goes on to say, if you complain of deadness and dullness, that you cannot love Christ nor rejoice in his love, <clears throat> that you have no life in prayer or any other duty, and yet neglect this quickening employment that is meditating on heaven, you're the cause of your own complaints. If you would have light and heat, why are you not more in the sunshine? Fetch one coal daily from the altar of heaven and see if thy offering will not burn. I don't want you to hear that as a burden. I don't want you to hear that as you need to do this. It's an invitation to say that when we find our hearts dead and cold, that's part of being human. 
But the, one of the gifts God has given us by the Spirit is that we just take small steps to think upon what is true, to meditate on these truths of heaven. And when we do that, by the Spirit, God often warms and transforms our hearts. So I just want to close by inviting you this week to take these five images of heaven, maybe take one a day, get on your knees and pray through them, think about them, turn them around in your minds, and I guarantee you that by the grace of God, your heart will turn from dullness to thankfulness because God has ordained that we keep our hearts strong and faithful, even in a time of crisis, by meditating on heaven. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.